Support for The Interchange comes from Schneider Electric, the leader of the digital transformation, energy management, and automation. There are the three Ds of uh, the energy transition you might have heard of, decentralization, decarbonization, and digitalization, and they are reshaping the energy landscape. Schneider Electric is harnessing all of them and pioneering solutions like microgrids for everything from community resiliency to higher adoption of electric vehicles. You can find out more at schneider-electric.us slash microgrid. And if it's easier for you, we've got a link in the show notes. The Interchange is also brought to you by PG&E. 39% of California's greenhouse gas emissions come from transportation. Transportation emissions are really big now. They're outpacing electric sector emissions. And did you know that most medium and heavy-duty trucks spend about one-third of their time idling and thus polluting? Well, not anymore if you go electric. EVs have no tailpipe emissions in idle. And if you're a PG&E customer, you can take advantage of limited time incentives with their EV fleet program. Make the smart choice by taking your fleet electric. Get in touch with one of PG&E's EV specialists to learn more. Head on over to pge.com gtm. That's pge.com gtm. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey. I am a contributing editor for GTM here in Boston. Out in Berkeley is Shale Khan, Managing Director at Energy Impact Partners. How are you, sir? Doing great, Stephen. How are you? Good. You feeling risky? <laughs> Always. What's the riskiest thing that you've done in the last week? Mm. Um, <laughs> riskiest thing that I did was I, uh, I ate a dish that my wife made that involved like some weird combination of pumpkin, chicken, uh, quinoa. Actually, now that I'm describing it, it doesn't sound as weird as it sounded when she first described it to me, but it felt, it was, it <laughs> was good, pretty good. It felt risky at the time. You didn't do anything crazy, like buy a, a coastal property in North Carolina or something in a flood zone. I've, I've not yet done that. <laughs> Well, if you really want to roll the dice, you know where to go. Uh, This week, why are we talking about risk? Because we are starting our interview series on climate risk. And we are kicking off with a guest who we have had on this show before. Who is it, Shale? Uh, Trevor Hauser. Trevor is uh, the managing partner um, and founder at the Rhodium Group. Um, we had him on once before to talk about the future of coal in the United States due to some research that Rhodium had done. But I've been wanting actually for a while to have a conversation with Trevor about climate risk because um, his team at Rhodium, along with an organization that they've sort of been a part of founding called the Climate Impact Lab, have done some really just amazing work trying to understand in extraordinary detail the economic risk associated with climate change, which I think is becoming a more and more important topic. And this is one of a few interviews that we are doing on the subject. Um, You know, we're asking these logical questions. Now that the science is becoming very clear, we want to know how do we measure and quantify both the physical and economic risk of a warming planet? And, And this is a question that has very real consequences right now for the way that companies are run the way that cities are planned, and the way that markets are valued. These are not white paper questions anymore. These are very important real-world questions. So you have been thinking about this, Shale, and this series was uh, largely your idea because this subject is on your mind. Why is it on your mind? Well, admittedly, I've spent most of my career thinking about climate change mitigation, 
what do we do to combat the effects of climate change to stop it from happening? Um, and not as much time on adaptation. You know, if you if you believe the climate science and believe that this stuff is coming, what does it mean? But I think that there's a a really interesting kind of revolution going on right now around um, our ability to predict climate risk. And at a pretty granular level, one of the things you'll hear when we I talk to Trevor is how detailed we're able to become now in predicting what risks we'll see due to climate change. And so then the question is, um, if the, the predictions are getting better and better and better, what do we do about it? Uh, and what does that kind of analysis offer us in terms of the ability to better plan, better invest, um, basically just minimize the impacts of climate change as it happens? And I, I think when you add it all up, there's actually really a lot going on in that world right now, which I found I found interesting personally. I've also found it interesting from an investment perspective because there's a whole world around, you know, climate change risk prediction and analytics and, um, you know, adaptation, unfortunately. Yeah. One of the things that I pulled from this conversation is that we are getting a lot more sophisticated at quantifying and assessing and projecting risk. And there are, of course, still plenty of uncertainties, but this um, this science of assessing risk has gotten a lot better. And that's an important piece of the conversation. Right. Um, and it's one thing to say, you know, uh, the southeastern United States is going to see more frequent and larger hurricanes in the future. There's not a lot you could do based on that. Um, but if you can get really detailed about it and understand not just where the risk will be and you know, exactly how big the hurricanes might be and so on, what the um, delta is between what we see today and what we might see in 20 years, but then also translate that into, and what would that actually mean and for whom? Who's at risk the most? And what would it mean for them economically? What would it mean for the you know public safety and all those kinds of things? Then you can really start to take action on it. Okay, well, let's hear Shale's conversation with Trevor Hauser, a partner at Rhodium Group, about the risky business of climate change. Trevor, welcome. Hi, Shale. Uh, I want to start by talking about what climate risk is. As you think about it and applying it in the world, how do you define climate risk specifically as opposed to just risk of natural disaster, for example? Um, and is there sort of a defined term that everybody has agreed upon at this point? Yeah, so a few years ago, there was an organization called the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. They put out a report that I think kind of helpfully broke down the nomenclature in this area. And so the, the way that they talk about it, which is generally the terminology that we use, is there's physical risk, which is the risk to the economy, to individual assets, to communities, to companies of changes in the climate due to human activity. So that's everything from more frequent and intense hurricanes to heat waves to drought, precipitation, and all the attendant economic effects that those have. And then there's transition risk, which is the risk to companies or assets or economies from policy or technology developments aimed at slowing the pace of climate change uh, and uh, transitioning to a lower zero carbon economy. Right. So if you're an oil company, then you face a lot of transition risk. You may also face some physical risk. But just on physical risk specifically, I guess one thing I've always wondered is how you distinguish between uh, 
the risk of a particular natural disaster, I face some risk of a hurricane that could damage my facilities, whatever they might be, or my business, uh, versus the risk of a hurricane that is more frequent or larger magnitude driven specifically by climate change? Because that's what you're trying to find in climate risk, right? Exactly. It's a great question. So weather is not new. We've had weather for a long time. Weather impacts almost every facet of our economy. Uh, And because of that, market participants, companies, investors have spent a lot of time trying to understand weather and estimate the probability of certain extreme weather events occurring. So if you're an insurance provider, a large part of your job is estimating the frequency of a wildfire, of a hurricane, or of a drought, so that you know how much to charge in insurance premiums uh, to your policyholders. Um, The way that market participants have generally done that is looking historically at the frequency of these extreme events. And the more infrequent and extreme the event is, the longer historical data set you need to draw from to estimate the probability of it occurring next year, right? So if it's a extreme heat wave, maybe you have to look at 30 years of history to get enough samples. If it's a Cat 5 hurricane, you probably have to look at 100 and 120 years of history. And that's a perfectly reasonable approach if there's been no change in the underlying physics of those events over the past 100 years. But what we know about climate change is that warmer uh, atmospheric temperatures are increasing the probability of a range of extreme weather events, and in some cases, the severity. Um, But that doesn't show up in the historical data uh, until you're well into that trend occurring. So right now we're in a period where uh, most market participants are 10, 20, 30 years behind the curve because they've been relying just on these historical averages. So when we talk about climate risk, it is how has anthropogenic climate change or how has human releases of greenhouse gas emissions changed the frequency or intensity of those extreme weather events that have such a deleterious impact on our economy. And so there's been something of a movement over the past few years around getting companies in particular to report on their climate risk. How at risk is my business? And to make this a part of their public reporting that they have to do in front of the SEC or whatever the equivalent is in other countries. You mentioned the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, TCFD, which I think has been sort of the organizing body pushing that risk reporting. What are they actually asking companies to report and how meaningful is it so far? So there's TCFD and then there are organizations like the Carbon Disclosure Project or Ceres that are also both creating protocols for companies to do reporting and pushing them. The vast majority of that effort to date has been focused on transition risk. And so the reporting that companies have been doing is greenhouse gas emissions reporting, uh, scenario analysis of how their business would be impacted by a transition to a clean energy economy. There has been very, very little work done on the physical climate risk side to date. Hmm. So in other words, what's happening is like, say I'm Amazon and I have a million distribution warehouses and I do a lot of shipping and stuff like that. If I'm reporting based on TCFD or one of these other guidelines, probably what I'm saying is, well, if the U.S. instituted a carbon tax, for example, it would probably raise the cost of shipping for me. And so, you know, products would become more expensive. That would have some impact on my business. That's like the type of thing that they're reporting to date. Exactly. And and and, and even that has a level of policy specificity that most of this reporting doesn't have. So in, in, in likelihood, it's in Instead, here is 
uh, if I'm Amazon, here are my emissions. And there's a, a question of how broad of a scope are you reporting? Uh, so are you just reporting the emissions that come from your facilities? Are you reporting the emissions that come from your supply chain, from the products that you sell? If you're ExxonMobil, the emissions from your facilities are not nearly as important as the emissions from the products that you sell that are burned by other people. Uh, are you reporting the emissions from the vehicles that your employees use to drive to work? So there's a bunch of boundary condition debates that happen in reporting, but generally the reporting is, here are our emissions uh, and from what part of our operation they come in. And here's how we would adjust to a low carbon transition. Uh, rarely do they do companies get into prognostication about what form climate policy that drives that clean energy transition will take. Some will use a carbon price, uh, but that's about as specific as people generally get. Mm -hmm. So I want to focus mostly on the physical risk side of things, because uh, I think that's most interesting for me in the context of, I think it being somewhat new, or at least we're, we're just starting to see more of it now. Um, and the sense that I have broadly is that th the idea of being able to analyze, predict, and report on the physical risk driven by climate change is enabled by improvements in some combination of climate science and econometrics and other things that have happened recently. So it's only in the past few years that we've really been able to isolate climate risk down to a specific enough level to be able to say, this is, I'm Amazon and I have a bunch of warehouses and here's the physical risk to these warehouses driven by climate change. Is that true? Yeah, that's right. So we, our work on this topic started in 2013 uh, when uh, uh, Kate Gordon, who was then at the Center for the Next Generation, uh, asked us if we could produce a stern review-like report for the U.S., analyzing the economic impacts of climate change in the U.S. Uh, for what became the Risky Business Project, which was an effort of former Treasury secretaries and secretaries of state and CEOs, including Hank Paulson and Mike Bloomberg and Bob Rubin, Greg Page, to raise awareness about the economic costs of climate change. Also a current presidential candidate, Tom Steyer. And Tom Steyer, <laughs> current presidential candidate Steyer. And the uh, uh, what we found when we took that project on was that there, if you were looking, if you were an investor, if you were a business executive or a community planner, and you were trying to assess the physical risk of climate change, you had basically two types of information available. One was quantitative information, but at an extremely geographically aggregated level. So back in the early 1990s, there was a movement among economists led by Bill Nordhaus, who recently won a Nobel Prize for his pioneering work at that time, to put a price tag on climate change using these fairly simplified integrated assessment models. And the way those models were built is there was an estimate of what a given change in global temperature would do to global GDP. Right? And then you'd put a price tag on that change in global GDP. And, uh, and that was an extremely useful framework for economists to start thinking about this problem and for people to think about climate science in economic terms. How is it actually impacting our economy? But it didn't really provide much value if you were trying to assess risk to your specific constituents or investment portfolio or your supply chain. Nobody lives at global GDP. Nobody does business at global GDP. Uh, the other type of information that was available were from IPCC reports that had more 
regional disaggregated information, but it was very qualitative and directional. So no quantified numbers in terms of the dollar of impact, uh, which also made it hard for uh, investors or business owners or local planners to really know what to make, uh, what to do with that. And so what we sought out to do was pull together an interdisciplinary team of climate scientists and economists and data engineers to all work together on trying to solve this problem. So to take increasingly sophisticated global climate models that the physical science community has been developing. So there's 20, 30 high-quality government-funded research institutions around the world that build these global climate models that are getting you know pretty good at projecting changes in temperature or precipitation or sea level rise around the world. Um, and then with a tight team of econometricians comb through all of this historical weather and outcome data to try to identify relationships. So the fact that we've had 105 degree days in Iowa in the past means that we have evidence of what 105 degree day does to corn yields in Iowa. And you know, scalable cloud computing, big data analytics tools now make it possible for a team of academic econometricians to comb through terabytes of that historical data and identify relationships and build these models. And then we can apply those models to climate projections developed by these government research institutions around uh, around the world. And you know, the first year of our project was spent getting the climate scientists and the economists to even speak the same language to each other. This kind of interdisciplinary research is really hard to do in uh, in academia. And this was with a pretty high caliber set of partners at the University of California, Berkeley and Rutgers University later expanded to include the University of Chicago. And uh, and it was a uh, an extremely committed, young, dynamic group of, uh, of researchers who wanted to spend their careers working on this kind of interdisciplinary challenge. But even the incentives in academia aren't aligned in a way to make that easy or in some cases even possible. So it took a lot of work to build a multi-institutional research structure that made that kind of interdisciplinary research possible. And then per your point, the other thing that made it possible was just the dramatic declines in the cost of cloud computing. And we at the Climate Impact Lab, the analysis that we do requires scalable cloud computing of the magnitude of a small to mid-sized tech company. And yeah, it's the type of thing that just three, four years ago would have been completely cost prohibitive for a research team like ours. And it's now it's expensive, but it's not. Uh, but it's it's uh, it's obtainable for us. So it strikes me that you have at least sort of two challenges as you're trying to marry these things together. The first is geographic granularity, because at the end of the day, what you want to be able to do is look at a specific physical thing and say, what is the risk to this thing over the next 50, 100 years? I don't know how far out you go, driven by climate change. And that's a challenge, especially given when the, sort of the climate models are getting better and better, but there's uncertainty inherent in them. Um, so you've got this geographic granularity question. And then you've got this, like, as you mentioned before, weather is pervasive. It impacts basically everything in our economy. And so while we might have good data on what a 105 degree day does to corn yields in Iowa, do we have data on what a 105 degree day does to everything in Iowa? Right. And how do we like overall come up with some impact on the economy? So how good are we getting at both of those things? Yeah. So the uh, geographic resolution is getting better. Um, there's 
we look at across a full, we use a multi-model approach. So we look at a full suite of climate models and there are areas where there's pretty broad agreement among climate models about impacts at a local level. And there's areas where there's pretty wide disagreement. And we carry that uncertainty all the way through the analysis. So uncertainty in and of itself is not a problem. And uh, the organizations that we work with that need this information for risk assessment are pretty comfortable with uncertainty. There's uncertainty in all parts of life. Uh, And it's being able to parameterize uh, that uncertainty and treat it consistently through your analytical process. That's uh, that's important. Um, and then the uh, the scope question that you raised. So what there's the known knowns, there's the, you know, the known unknowns, and then the unknown unknowns in climate risk analysis. We uh, over time are expanding the scope of what we can cover as new evidence comes available, as new research tools come available. Uh, we can also look at, you know, we do this research in two ways. We'll do it bottom up where we look sector by sector based on evidence of how temperatures have impacted mortality rates or have impacted civil conflict or migration uh, historically. Then we also can do top-down research where we observe the relationship between GDP growth rates in countries and temperature or hurricanes uh, where we have a much more uh, holistic uh, where, where it's capturing a much broader range of drivers. We don't really know the channel of influence in that case, what's driving the change in GDP, but it's capturing it more broadly. So are there areas where there's still a fairly wide band of uncertainty, or I guess put differently, are there areas within this climate risk prediction where there are major disputes about what's going to happen, what the risk is, what the economic impact might be? Sure. So on the science side, uh, there's pretty broad agreement among climate models on temperature, more disagreement on precipitation patterns. Those are harder to project. What we know is that as the atmosphere warms, the amount of moisture that is held in the atmosphere increases. So globally, it means more precipitation. Predicting exactly where that precipitation will fall and in what Uh, kind of um, concentration is much harder for climate models to do. Uh, Likewise, we have very high degree of confidence in sea level rise projections, particularly in the near term. As you get farther out, uh, Antarctic ice sheet melt dynamics uh, make it more challenging to predict. Predicting changes in hurricane activity is harder. The sciences is uh, is more challenging there, and there's a wider range of estimates across models of exactly how much the intensity or frequency of different types of hurricanes will change. Today, we live in a world where the entire power ecosystem is being upended, disrupted by global technology trends like digitalization, combined with locally based movements for more distributed clean energy. And as part of that evolution, Schneider Electric helps companies, communities, and governments embrace microgrids to enable a more resilient, reliable, and sustainable future. In Montgomery County, Maryland, for example, county officials launched an aggressive effort to improve resilience at its expansive government facilities after devastating storms in 2012. And as part of a wide-ranging solution completed in 2018, 
the county worked with Schneider Electric to install two microgrids at critical government facilities that incorporate renewables, EV charging, and combined heat and power with no money up front. Across North America, Schneider Electric has designed and built more than 300 microgrids. To learn more about their microgrid-as-a-service funding model, say hello to Schneider at the 2019 Verge Conference on October 22nd through 24th, or visit them via the link in the show notes of this podcast. We are also brought to you by PG&E. Medium and heavy-duty vehicles play a big role in California's pursuit of 5 million zero-emission vehicles on the road by 2030. And with over 70 different models of zero-emission vans, trucks, and buses already commercially available from several manufacturers, now is the time to take your commercial fleet electric. So where to begin? Well, you can begin with PG&E's free guidebook on fleet electrification and infrastructure. And if you download that, you'll get uh, all the information you need to start transitioning your fleet to electric, including advice on charger selection, site planning, additional funding opportunities, and much more. Download your free copy of the guidebook today, no strings attached, or forms to fill at pge.com gtmev, or just click that little link there in the show notes and you will get your report to help you on your way to electrify. So I want to go through some specific examples of how this plays out and how you can actually what what it means to predict climate risk for different kinds of players and assets and so on. Um, and using as a frame, you guys published a good white paper along with BlackRock or BlackRock published it using analysis from Rhodium a little a little while back. BlackRock being the gigantic institutional asset manager who appears to now be taking this pretty seriously um, and sort of outlined three different groups of parties that can and should, I guess, uh, take climate risk into account. And those three groups were municipalities, in this case, in the form of municipal bonds, the impact on muni bonds, two, commercial real estate, uh, and three, energy and utilities. So uh, let's talk about each of those individually, because I think they're three very different but interesting case studies in what climate risk analytics means and what it can do. So let's start with muni bonds. So I'm a city. Uh, I use muni bonds to pay for lots of the stuff that I do. What does it mean for me to be thinking about climate risk? How can I predict it at the scale of a city? What do I actually need to understand? Uh, And then we can talk about how you might incorporate it into your planning. Yeah. So uh, it depends on what kind of bond I'm issuing. So if I'm issuing a, let's say I'm a county issuing a general obligation bond, then what matters most to me, I'm using it to raise revenue to fund a broad set of activities. uh, And that bond is going to get repaid through tax revenue. Uh, So for the bond holder, the people buying that debt, what they're concerned about is, is climate change going to reduce tax revenue in your area and your ability to repay this debt? Um, There's also more asset-specific municipal bonds, so a water and sewer district that'll issue a municipal bond. And there, there's direct physical risk to the asset that's being financed with that bond revenue. Uh, And one of the things that was most encouraging to us after publishing the report with BlackRock is, uh, is pretty immediate outreach from bond issuers around the country, counties and city governments, uh, wanting to understand how they could improve local resilience to make their finances, their infrastructure more resilient to climate impacts. And I think that's what this type of engagement with the financial services community can really help facilitate. This is particularly true in places where 
there is not, you know, you and I are sitting here talking in California, uh, a state with a pretty strong governor-led effort to try to identify climate risk and improve resilience. In a lot of parts of the U.S., that's not the case. In some parts of the U.S., it's a political liability for a local planner to be thinking ahead and looking at how much your sea level is going to rise. What do I need to do to harden uh, sewer and water infrastructure? And so having the primary debt issuers to those uh, local governments ask them for their resilience plans. What are you doing to make sure that uh, this 30-year infrastructure that you're building now is going to be resilient to climate risk in the, uh, in, in the future is, I think, can help catalyze a level of resilience investment that wouldn't otherwise occur. And it can help demonstrate the benefit of that resilience investment from the investor's standpoint, that it makes sense to spend money in seawalls and infrastructure hardening, uh, because otherwise there's going to be a meaningful decline in local tax revenue and make it harder for those municipal governments to finance their that. Hmm. So, okay. So let's, let's try to give a specific example then. So I was looking through the, the data from that report that you guys published with BlackRock. So overall, you found that within a decade, more than 15% of the current S&P National Municipal Bond Index would be issued by basically municipalities who will be facing economic losses of at least half a percent to 1% of GDP annually. So what you're saying, that's the sort of generalized obligation bond risk right. is like this city or county or whatever it is will just have a lower GDP, lower tax revenue that will impact the city's ability to repay the bond. Correct. Exactly. Okay. And so then it, it varies a lot by cities. You can imagine some cities are pretty resilient already or just don't have that much risk. Right. Seattle, not that risky, it appears. Uh, other end of the spectrum, Miami, which is probably not all that surprising, but Miami by the sort of end of this century experiencing 4 to 5% GDP losses annually. And that's just in the categories that are quantified in that report per your earlier point. So right. that's for five or six impact categories that we quantify. The impact of changes in sea level rise and hurricane activity on coastal infrastructure, uh, changes in energy expenditures, labor productivity, crime rates, agricultural yields, which matters less in a place like Miami. Uh, and uh, uh, there are a range of other climate risks. So you know, think about that: four to five percent is a floor, not a ceiling. Um, but it is illustrative of you know one thing that we find throughout this research is uh, is physical climate risk is highly, highly place based. It really depends on where you live, and that's why the, the previous approach of analyzing things in terms of percent of global GDP was really not terribly informative because you could have a 2% GDP loss at a national level, which is the average of 3 to 4% gains in some parts of the country and 20 to 30% losses in other parts of the country. Right. I mean, in some ways you'd expect... So if this... So let's just say that this becomes the norm in, in muni bond reporting and in screens that investors take, then it ultimately gets priced in and you would think... So Miami's muni bonds, for example, will take a big hit. They will become a lot more expensive. There's going to be some other cities where they will perform better right. as a result. Right. And then that helps facilitate adaptive behavior because it's cheaper to invest in places that are more resilient and more expensive to invest in places that are less resilient. Do you find that uh, institutional investors who own muni bonds and trade muni bonds are starting to awaken to this? Are they taking it seriously? Is it hard to convince them 
you know, where do they stand generally on the spectrum of like, this is a thing we should be pricing in? It's not, we found, it's not very challenging to convince them once you have the data. The, the, the problem here is that it's really only the past year or two where this kind of quantified economic information has been available on the physical risk side. And, uh, and I think the other element of this analysis that's been really compelling for people is, um, you know, when climate scientists do research, they tend to present results in papers in terms of the impact in 2100 or 2150. And if you're a municipal bond investor, it's muni bond is a pretty long held asset, but it's not a hundred year asset. And one of the things that we found in this research, just gets back to what we were talking about at the beginning, is that the vast majority of that economic risk comes from these extreme events, infrequent extreme events that are becoming more frequent now because of climate change. So the ability to quantify the extent to which the risk exposure for either a municipality or a building is different now than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and that that change in risk has not been priced into the market is the portion of the analysis that uh, that, that makes portfolio managers or investors really wake up. So you mentioned uh, city or a building, so that's a good transition into the second category here, which is commercial real estate. So talk a little bit about how climate risk is uh, similar if you're looking at commercial real estate versus muni bonds, and how is it different? Yeah, so if I uh, own a commercial building, uh, I have a couple major operating expense elements. I have energy costs for my building, uh, maintenance, property insurance, uh, and then I have uh, revenue elements, my occupancy rate, if I'm uh, leasing it out. Uh, climate impacts both sides of that ledger. So on the expense side, changes in temperature can pretty meaningfully increase air conditioning costs for buildings. Uh, it decreases heating costs. So again, it really depends on where you are in the country. If it's a commercial building in Maine, it's probably going to be a net reduction in operating costs. If you're in, um, if you're in uh, uh, Tampa, Florida, and you're not having to pay much for heating now, it's a pretty sizable net increase in costs. For your property insurance, if your insurer is setting your premiums based on 100 years of historical hurricane data, uh, they're underpricing the premium for you today. Now, if you own that building, that's good news this year because the insurer is subsidizing your risk. But those are all one-year contracts. And if you buy a 30-year asset under the assumption that your insurance premium is going to stay pretty much the same adjusted for inflation, and then it doubles or triples because the insurers have realized the extent to which hurricane exposure has changed, that can pretty meaningfully impact the economics of your building. Right. And we see this happening in real time in, at the residential level in California right now, yep. where there's homeowners all over the place in wildland urban interface areas who are seeing their insurance premiums just like skyrocket. Exactly. You guys had a good anecdote in the report that BlackRock released uh, with you guys that about Hurricane Irma, which hit Florida. Um, and impacted a bunch of commercial buildings, 2% of the overall sort of commercial building loan market there, but that 80% of the properties that were damaged lay outside official flood map zones, which uh, I've heard people complain about the official flood maps many, many times. Can you explain why they're so insufficient and then how that manifests in this like insurance insufficiency 
context? Yeah, absolutely. So the uh, flood insurance is primarily provided through a federal program called the National Flood Insurance Program. Uh, and, uh, and FEMA, which administers that program, sets what are called firms, they're flood maps, that have a one in a hundred year floodplain defined. If you live within that one in a hundred year floodplain and you have a federally underwritten mortgage, then you're required to buy flood insurance from FEMA. Uh, if you live outside that floodplain, uh, you're not required to buy uh, flood insurance. Occasionally, private flood insurance will be available. Very few people buy private flood insurance on the market. Uh, those maps are largely outdated. Uh, they don't capture changes in the climate that have been occurring for the past 20 or 30 years. They don't cover all parts of the country that actually have flood risk today, just because it's a very expensive, time-intensive exercise. Uh, and it's binary. It's either you're in a one in a hundred year floodplain or you're not. It doesn't account for pretty large changes in flood risk within the one in 100 year floodplain, depending on how close you are to a river or to the coast, uh, or ho homes that are at risk of flooding, it's just not in the one in 100 year floodplain. They might be in the one in 101 year floodplain or one in 102 year floodplain. Uh, so the CBO recently had a report, the Congressional Budget Office, estimating that only 17% of all expected residential flooding is covered by federal flood insurance. Another 16%, I think, or so gets covered by disaster relief funds that FEMA provides after. The remainder is completely uncovered. It gets funded out of pocket by homeowners. There's no insurance. There's no safety net whatsoever. Uh, and that risk is increasing, and the share that's uninsured is increasing. So in the case of muni bonds, the player who can make decisions that will impact that risk is the municipality or the sewer and water district or whoever it might be. In this commercial real estate market, it's the asset owner, whoever intends to own the building for the long term. And what can they do? I mean, in this case, they can't really build like flood walls. Yeah. So one, they can actually engage with their local government to get that kind of resilient infrastructure built. Um, they, there are some building level hardening that, that, uh, that a property owner can do. Uh, in terms of climate-driven changes in energy costs, there's efficiency improvements, on-site generation, et cetera. Uh, and, uh, uh, and little things like changing the kind of window panes that you have. So a big risk for commercial building owners is lost revenue from post-storm occupancy fall off while you're getting your windows replaced from hurricane force winds. So things that harden the windows that reduce the risk uh, or increase the recovery time after a storm. I've actually been surprised. I spent a little time recently, this is more at the residential level than the commercial level, but spent a little bit of time recently just trying to understand like how much can you build resilience into a home and how much safer does that make your home in the case of a natural disaster, depending on the context? Mm -hmm. There's Depending on the natural disaster, again, there's a lot you can yeah. do. If you're in a wildfire area, you know, there's just a whole new building code that your building isn't probably up to if it was built before 2008 that seems to make a big difference. In hurricane territory, there's this standard, this kind of a lead standard for roofs called a fortified roof that if you have a fortified roof, you're you're much more resilient to a hurricane. There's actually a lot that mm -hmm. can be done. I assume this is true at the commercial level as well, but there's yeah. always been this sort of like barrier to investment in resilience, which which is seems to me to be like a, I don't know, it's, it's not 
totally dissimilar from why we people have a hard time investing in energy efficiency, which yeah. is like it, it almost definitely will pay back over time, but it's over time. Right. And maybe it's doubly challenging in the case of resilience because people don't generally think in terms of like the risk of a 101 year flood hitting me in the next 20 years. Yeah. So I, I guess the nice thing about the type of work that you guys are doing is is trying to sort of bake that risk calculation into something that gets priced. Because if something gets priced and it's more expensive to you as a result, then you have a direct economic incentive to make a decision. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if you're a commercial building owner in, uh, uh, in Charleston and your current property insurance is $200,000 a year, and we do some analysis for you that suggests that that could go up to four or $500,000 a year due to changes in sea levels and hurricane activity. Uh, all of a sudden, you're going to start looking for, well, if I'm going to stay in this, a couple options, I could sell this property uh, and before that risk materializes, or I can try to harden. And now I have a number that my operations team can use to do that cost-benefit analysis. Uh, and uh, uh, and. Ideally, you have cooperation from the insurance providers who look at your – this is harder to do in the residential space because there's less tailored quotes, although there are programs that will you know, give you a reduction in your home insurance premium, your fund insurance premium, if you have storm shutters, things like that. Uh, for a commercial, the quotes are much more tailored to the building, and so there's opportunities to engage with your insurer to get the, your premium reduced if you make certain types of, uh, certain types of defensive investments. Right. Okay, so let's talk about the third category. We talked about muni bonds, commercial real estate. The third one is energy and utilities. Um, it's obviously a big category, and there's uh, many different ways in which climate risk can impact, let's say, a utility, right? They have a ton of physical infrastructure, so there's physical risk to all of it. Uh, at least in this report, you spent the most time looking at generation, so generation facilities. Um, first of all, why? Yeah, so for that, we the utility analysis in that report, the team at BlackRock did. So we provided them data, and they did the the analysis on the generation side. Uh, I think that there's so if we think about utility risk, there's a couple of categories. It's not entirely clear actually to us which one's most important. It depends a little bit. I think utility by utility. So on the generation side, there's storm, flood wildfire risk to specific generating assets. There's also operational risk, both from ambient air temperatures and from water temperatures. So thermal generating units have shutoff points, uh, either the for the river water that they use for cooling or for ambient air temperatures. Uh, the um, uh, On the transmission and distribution side, Hurricanes are the by far leading cause of power outages in the U.S. Uh, by an order of magnitude above anything else, and uh, uh, and if those hurricanes are changing in their geography, which they are, uh, if they're becoming more intense and more frequent, then that presents a pretty material risk to utilities. Some utilities can rate base that uh, that repair investment. Others have a more difficult time doing so. Uh, and then the third category is uh, is load and demand. And uh, climate change increases overall load, but it really increases the need for peak load because it's it's boosting those extremely, extremely hot days. And, uh, and that can have uh, some of the most significant impacts on, uh, on electric system economics. Is there a similar 
capacity, I'm thinking about load now. You know, if you're a utility, you need to be doing a fair amount of, say, distribution planning around expected changes in load. And probably most of what you're thinking about right now, you know, load has been relatively stagnant, at least at the macro level, for quite a while. And to the extent that you expect a shock to the system, it's probably vehicle electrification, right? right? That's the main thing that you're like, well, if something's going to really move the needle on load, um, should they also be thinking, well, temperature rise? for example, could really increase load in this particular area of my territory and I need to build that infrastructure ahead of that? Or is the timeline sort of too far out? No, no, it's it, the timeline is aligned. It, in total annual load, it's not going to even touch EVs, but it's, it's those extremely hot days that are already going to strain your reserve requirements. It's pushing those up to peak. So the total amount of electricity demand uh, that increased from climate change in the U.S. is you know, low single digits, mid, mid teens, uh, depending on where you are in the country by 2050 or 2070. So it's not, it's not nothing, but compared to electrification, it's, it's relatively small, but all of that increase is coming in, uh, what were already pretty hot, uh, peak days. So it has a disproportionate impact on, uh, on, uh, on load management at peak. So how do you think this, all this analysis that you guys are doing, and there's others who are, who are doing different versions of it as well. Um, how does this all play out? I mean, you know, how much do you think it starts to get incorporated into pricing for various assets for, uh, how does it get, you know, is it going to be standard in, um, in load planning for utilities, you know, is this just going to be the norm and we're kind of at the front end of it right now? Or is there a real battle to still get this sort of incorporated into major thinking and decision-making? And I will add a a second string question here, which is how important are uh, galvanizing events in your mind in order to convince um, all the players in this ecosystem to account for this? In other words, Proactive power shutoffs in California, driven by wildfire risk and major hurricanes, and you know, pick your pick your calamity. Yeah. So the to answer your second question first, they're critical. I mean, the, there's been a step function change in the level of appetite and interest for this type of information following the 2017, 2018 hurricane seasons and the wildfire seasons over the past two years, uh, have made it just abundantly clear to companies, to investors, to local government officials that this risk is here now, and they need to start planning for it. You know, that said. It's complicated science, and it takes a while to educate people on how to think about the data, how to use it constructively. Um, we think it's extremely important that uh, that all of the research done in this space and applied has a peer-reviewed foundation, that people can re- reproduce it and recreate it to build confidence that you know, this is something that actually has a strong scientific background behind it. And we can increasingly pinpoint how much climate change is going to increase the frequency of certain types of events. And we can estimate the cost of those in a way that's robust enough. There's plenty of uncertainty, but it's robust enough that if I'm a company or an investor, I can use it in in, uh, in decision making. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, government-funded research institutes do a lot of work that uh, organizations like ours leverage. Uh, there's critical uh, primary research that's being produced at universities around the country, and uh, and and it's it's essential that all of that work 
you know, remain peer reviewed and open to to uh, to public interrogation, uh, so that people have confidence that uh, that uh, that there's uh, well founded science behind all of this. Speaking of uh, public confidence and interrogation and so on, um, what is your preferred way to? So when we have a major natural disaster. If we have a, for example, you know, one in five, quote unquote, 500 year flood, and it happens twice in the past 10 years, how do you like to describe the relationship between that event and climate change? It's it's a, you see lots of different versions of it. This was caused by climate change. Right. Then people argue that it wasn't that it was made worse. Like what's the right way scientifically to describe it? Yeah. So if, if you're doing it in a non-quantitative way, it's to say that uh, that climate change has increased the probability, increased the frequency of this event occurring. So uh, if you take a given hurricane, uh, changes in the climate have, uh, it meant that hurricane was more intense than it would have been before, it meant that it dumped more rain that it would have been before. It wasn't that that hurricane was caused by climate change specifically. Uh, now, the attribution science is getting good enough where in some cases we can say there was a 10 to 40% uh, that hurricane was 10 to 40 percent more likely now than it would have been had changes in the climate not uh, not not occurred. And it's usually in that, you know, in that magnitude. Trevor Hauser is a partner and founder at the Rhodium Group. Um, they've produced an incredibly valuable set of information, not just about climate risk, but a whole bunch of surrounding stuff. Also, energy markets. Uh, check it all out at their website. Trevor, thank you so much for taking this time. Thanks, Shell. My pleasure. Again, that was Shale talking to Trevor Hauser, a partner at Rhodium Group. We've got a couple reports on this particular issue uh, on subjects discussed in the podcast if you want to peruse and dig into it more. Next week, we've got a much more narrow focus. It's how is climate risk playing out in the mortgage market? If you want to respond to the topics we're discussing in this show, hit us up on social media. Please send a link to your friends and colleagues. And don't forget to rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice. Thanks for joining us with Shale Khan. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is the Interchange Conversations on the Future of Energy from Green Tech Media. Green Tech Media.